Hey friends, just a heads up that we have less than 24 hours left in our year-end fundraising push. Specifically, we are looking to add new Theopolis partners. To become a partner or to give a year-end gift to Theopolis, there is a link in the show notes, or you can go to theopolisinstitute.com and click on the Give tab. Thank you so much for your support. We cannot do this work of renewing the church without you. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here he's going to be looking at Genesis chapters 11 and 12, looking at the themes of Exodus and Arrival. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Abraham. This is lecture two of our course in the life of Abraham. The passage that we'll look at this morning is Genesis 11:25 to 12, verse 5. It's just a few verses, but if we take these in somewhat more detail, it'll save us time later on. Let me read them. Verse 27 of Genesis 11. Now these are the generations of Terah. That really goes with the preceding section, and it's the title of the section. This is the history of Terah. And now we begin a section of the Bible that will be called the history of Abraham when we get down to the last verse. Actually, probably the original form written by Abraham himself. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot, and Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Sarah's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. And Sarah was barren and had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the ground shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons that they had converted in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And that ends the section that we'll look at today. That's a literary unit. The next section starts in verse 6 and goes over to the end of chapter 13. In overview, what we'll see here is death in Babylon in the first section, verses 27 to 30, and then we'll see an exodus, and we'll spend some time looking at the exodus pattern or theme in the Bible. Let's look at the first section here, death in Babylon. 
Now, when it says Ur of the Chaldeans, we need to remember that Chaldea is Babylonia. Some scholars have said that this would not have been a word used at the time, but when Moses rewrote Genesis and put it together, or when whoever the final person is who reworked it, there are places in Genesis that Moses didn't write, but that Samuel probably added in references to names and places. But however, at some later point, Ur was identified as Ur of the Chaldeans so that later generations would realize that this was Mesopotamia. It's the same place that Israel went into exile to later on. It's the same place where the Tower of Babel was built, and that's important for us. You have the Tower of Babel built on the plain of Shinar, which is in Paden Aram, or Mesopotamia. That's where Ur of the Chaldees is located. And that's where this curse takes place. Man falls, second Canaanite civilization is built, and it's out of that that Abraham is called. So Abram is delivered from that situation in a way that's analogous to the way Noah was delivered. The language in the Bible is such that the Tower of Babel situation is just like men were before the flood. And just as God destroyed the world and then delivered Noah, so God smashes the Tower of Babel, scatters everybody, and delivers Abraham. There are these continuities and connections in Genesis so that we get the same theme and idea over again. And here we have another exodus, only we're really beginning to get the exodus theme visible here. So it's in Babylon that it takes place. And the history that begins here goes all the way down to the end of the book of Kings. Genesis through Kings is one literary unit. It goes from creation all the way to the exile. Then you have a second history in the Bible. It starts with First Chronicles. And the First Chronicles begins Adam, Seth, and goes down, begins at creation again, and Chronicles goes all the way down to the exile and then continues into Ezra and Nehemiah into the other side. So there are these two large histories that are in the Bible. And Genesis begins a history that starts in Mesopotamia and goes down to the land of Canaan, then goes down into Egypt and comes out into the land of Canaan and then goes back to Mesopotamia. That's the structure of the literary package that goes from Genesis to the end of Kings, from Mesopotamia to the land of Canaan, down into Egypt, back into Canaan, back to Mesopotamia. Now we're at the beginning of that, this initial call away from the Tower of Babel, away from the 70 nations of the world which are fallen, and God will create a new nation with 70 elders, remember the 70 elders of Israel, which will be a new world a new world order. But we're not there yet. We're just getting called out of Babylon. Now look at what happens in Babylon. Notice the structure. There are parallels here. In verse 27, we have sons. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And in the next verse, we have death. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, in the next verse, we have wives. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, my princess. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and another woman named Iscah. So we have wives, and then we have, and Sarai was barren and had no child. See the parallels? There's strict literary parallels in the passage. And from that, we draw a lesson. If you have sons in Babylon... They die. 
And if you take wives in Babylon, they will be barren. That's the message. There's nothing there but death. Your sons will die. See, Haran was a son. He died while Terah was alive. Your sons will die. Your wives will be barren and not have children. That's the problem. You see, the seed has got to be born into the world to deliver humanity. But the sons die and the wives are barren. Your future is locked up. And there will be no salvation for the human race if we don't have the seed born into the world who will destroy the serpent and protect the bride. can't happen. So we've got this problem. If you live in Babylon, if you live around the Tower of Babel, there's no hope. There's no future. You've got to be called out by the grace of God into a new land. And that's what happens. Now, there is information given us in Acts chapter 7 about the call of Abram that we need to take into account. And so let me at least read to you from Acts 7 and we'll see what happens. How God miraculously delivered Abram and Lot and Sarai and their household from this cursed situation. This is Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, just before he was stoned. Chapter 7 of Acts, verses 2 to 4. Stephen said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of the glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now you see, what we have read is that they went to Haran, and you get the impression God appeared to Abram in Haran and said, let's move on to Canaan. But Acts tells us that God had already appeared to him in Ur and called him out of Ur. And they only went halfway to Haran and stopped there, and then they went on to the promised land. So it says in Acts 7, verse 4, Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. So what's the sequence of events? Abram is living in Ur, and they worship false gods there, according to Joshua chapter 24. And God of glory appears to him. Now, we might speculate that Shem, who was still alive, passed through Ur on one of his missionary journeys, or perhaps one of Shem's sons who was still alive, or grandsons, or perhaps somebody like Melchizedek, who was a true believer in the ancient world spoke to Abram, but that's not what the text says. It says that God's glory appeared to him. In other words, this is like Ezekiel chapter 1. This is the chariot with the four cherubim and the flaming wheels and the rainbow colors and the tremendous sound like express locomotive and all the other things that the Bible associates with the glory. It was a tremendous, miraculous, visionary experience. It's told us that in Acts chapter 7. The God of the glory appeared to him. So God appeared in all of his glory and splendor, like the burning bush appearing to Moses. The various features of the glory of God were there. So it was nothing less than a tremendous, miraculous visitation by God that shook Abram away from his idolatry and cause him to worship the Lord. The rabbis, this is just a parenthesis for fun, but the rabbis used to 
say that Abram was so smart and so spiritual that he gave up idolatry and worshipped the true God on his own. This is a Pelagian view, of course, but that living in Ur of the Chaldeas, they worshipped the moon, but Abram noticed that the moon was inconstant. It went from full to nothing and then back to full, so that couldn't be the one true God. And so Abram departed from moon worship and began to worship the sun, but he noticed that the sun rises and sets, so the sun couldn't be the true God. So he began to worship the stars, but he noticed that when the sun comes out, the stars disappear, so they couldn't be the one true God. So Abram figured out that there had to be a true God who was none of these things and decided not to be an idolater. But he had a problem because Abram was an idol maker and Terah was an idol maker and their whole shop was full of idols that they made all the time and sold to people. So Abram went in one night to his father's shop and busted up all the idols. And then he took an axe and put it in the hand of one of the idols that was lying on the floor. And his father came in the next day and said, Look at this, somebody came in here and busted up all the idols. What happened? And Abram said, Well, it's fairly obvious, isn't it, Father? This idol right here with the axe in his hand, he must have gone through and broken up all the rest and then hurt himself as well. He's lying here dead. And Terah said to Abram, You know these idols aren't really alive. And Abram said, That's right, so why do we worship them? Well, that's the Jewish legend. That's not true, even if it's interesting. Abram was appeared to by God in all of his glory. And that's how he was converted. And that's how he was called. In chapter 12, we read the statement, the call of Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives and your father's house. This is probably what was actually said when they were in Ur. Perhaps God appeared to him again in Haran and told him all the same things exactly again. It doesn't matter if we needed to know that, we would know it. Now let's look at the second section here. It's considerably longer and more involved, and that's the Exodus section. The Exodus pattern in the Bible, which we'll get to in a few minutes, always has this structure of going down into something and coming back out. And it's usually very carefully set out in the actual literary structure of the verses, and we'll see it. The way the passage is written, there are these parallels, and this is called a chiastic structure. If you want to write that down, it spells C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C. Chiastic. C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C. The chiastic structure is A-B-A. A-B-C-B-A. The information is nested inside, and there are some very, very long and involved chiastic structures in the Bible. The flood, for instance, if you look at the literary unit, it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, and then back to A again, and you can chart it out real simple. All the language is such that A is parallel to A prime down here at the end. The entire Jacob narrative is set out in a huge chiastic structure, which starts with Isaac getting a wife, and then it goes all the way down to the birth of Joseph in the strange land, and then the exodus back out of the strange land, and all the way down to new wives. It's all set out that way. The book of Zechariah has two very large chiastic structures, especially the dream sequence at the beginning. You remember that the first six chapters of Zechariah are night visions, and there are eight of them. And what they are is there are eight dreams that start when Zechariah goes to sleep, 
And then when you get around midnight, which is, of course, Passover time, when the angel appears and delivers the people, then you get the central vision where Joshua the high priest exchanges his garments and Zerubbabel is told that the Spirit will enable the kingdom to be built. And then you come on out again to dawn. The first dream, you've got horses sitting at rest, waiting to be sent out to conquer the world. The last dream, when you have the sunrise, the horses are going to be sent out to conquer the world. They go riding out. It's all very carefully done, you see. The Bible is full of these chiastic structures, and there's one here. In brief, we have an exodus from Ur. We have the age of Terah and his death. And then at the center of this little passage, we have the promise of God. So that's highlighted, the thing that's in the middle, is usually the transition from wrath to grace. Then we have, coming back out, the age of Abram and his deliverance instead of death, which when we read sensitively, we see that that's a contrast. Terah, we're given an age and his death. Abram, we're given an age and not a death, a deliverance. And then we have an exodus from Haran, and it's written in the same literary structure as the exodus from Ur. So let's be aware of that. Next time we're going to see an even larger and more detailed chiastic structure when Abraham goes through the land, goes down into Egypt, is attacked by Pharaoh, is delivered from Egypt, and comes back into the land. These things we're going to have to watch for because the structure that's in the passage helps us to know what the theological point of the passage is. What's the point of this passage? It's not just some Abrahamic covenant that we can isolate out and say, ah, yes, the Abrahamic covenant. The point of the passage is this exodus and the transition from wrath to grace that comes with God's promise. One other thing we might notice about the passage, starting in verse 31, before we get to God's promise here in your notes. At the beginning we have the exodus from Ur, and Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, that's Abram's nephew, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. So they went for the purpose of going to Canaan. But they didn't get there. They stopped. They went as far as Haran and settled there. Now what's important about that? What happens to Terah? The next thing we read is one more death notice. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. that remind you of anything? Remember, we're talking about an Exodus pattern. It should. When God called Israel out of Egypt, he called them to enter the land of Canaan. But what happened? They stopped in the wilderness and spent 40 years there. Now, we don't have enough chronological information to know how long Terah and Abraham spent in Haran but they probably spent 30 or 40 years there. See, the parallels are there. And why are these parallels there? Well, everything that's in the earlier part of the Bible is there to teach people who live later on. And the Jews who came out of Egypt, they knew this story, and they should have reflected on it and learned from it. And they also knew some of the other Exodus stories that we'll see in the book of Genesis, and they should have reflected on those and learned from them, but they didn't. Genesis is written as instruction for people who lived in the book of Exodus. Each time when history repeats itself, you look back at the earlier time and you're supposed to learn from it. But they didn't. And we'll watch that theme. We mentioned last week that that's one of the major themes in the life of Abram. What happens to Abram are all the things that happened to Israel later on. And Israel should have learned from the history of Abraham 
how to respond to God. So they came out, but they didn't go all the way to Canaan. They stayed in Haran like the wilderness, and they experienced death there. And then finally, once the older generation had died off, then Abram moved on into Canaan. Now let's look at the promise of God, because that will be a major thing we need to get the details of. Like I said, we don't know exactly when God said this to Abram. He may have said this when they were in Ur, in which case we could say, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and that's entirely possible in Hebrew. Or it could be that God appeared to Abram again in Haran and reminded him of what he'd already told him. The gist of this is, If you trust me and obey me, I will bless you and through you bless others. That's the gist of it. It's the same thing God always says. If you trust me and obey me, in order to obey me, you're going to have to trust me because you can't really see how this is going to work out. But if you trust me and obey me, then I'll bless you, and in you I'll bless other people. God says the same thing to us. I think sometimes we forget the fact that we become a blessing to other people when God blesses us. Remember what it says in John 7, that out of our innermost parts will come rivers of living water. God gives us living water, and we give living water to other people. It's the same thing here. I'll bless you and make you a blessing to others. Now let's look at the specific provisions here, and I've listed six of them. The first is to separate from the old Adamic family. To separate from the old Adamic family. Go forth from your country, that's the land of Shinar, and from your relatives and from your father's house separate from the Adamic family. Abraham has already done that. He's left Ur. And he's done that in leaving his relatives because Terah has died. And with the death of Terah, they can leave Haran. Now a question that comes up here, was Abraham, Abram supposed to separate from Lot? It says Lot went with him. No, because at this point at least, Lot has become part of Abram's household. Abram, as we will see, was a very important, wealthy prince and sheikh in the ancient world. He had all a retinue of 3,000 or more people with him, even at this time. He is referred to as a prince by the Hittites later on in Genesis, when he settled with some of the godly Canaanites who were living in the land. In chapter 14, Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, they were allies with Abram. Abram was the prince and head of them all. So we have to not think of Abram as some nomad with a few people living in a little house in Ur and then leaving. It's more like if you saw the movie Dune when the entire household of the Caladans moves from one planet to another and they pack up all this stuff in these huge spaceships and they move it across to another planet. Think that way when you read this. They were extremely important people with hundreds and hundreds of servants in Ur. And all those people packed up into a huge caravan and moved to Haran. And there they got even more people because they evangelized and converted them, as we'll see. And all those people packed up and moved to Canaan, a very large, powerful group of people. When it says they lived in tents, these were not teepees. They were great, big, huge tents. And not always in tents. 
There's no reason to think that just because they lived in tents, sometimes they always did. Sometimes they lived in big houses. And we'll see Abraham sets up, you know, he sets up a residence in Shechem, and he sets up a residence in Bethel, and he sets up a residence in Hebron, like rich people do today. He was rich, powerful, important man. That's who we're talking about here. And did he have to separate from Lot? No, not if Lot joined up into his household with all the rest. And that's the implication here, as we'll see. A couple of things we might notice. One is, Abram was not called to make a violent separation from his family. There's no condemnation of Abram here just because he waited for his father to die and then moved on into the land of Canaan. He was to look for occasions to separate himself and to follow God's will. But it was not a revolutionary and violent break that was required of him. At the same time, another thing we can notice is that the theme of separating from the Father is a creation ordinance. Genesis 2.24 For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And you'll notice in the book of Genesis that that always happens quite literally. Isaac moves away from Abram, or actually Abraham moves away from Isaac. And they see each other from time to time. They didn't live in the same place. And later on, Jacob moves away from Isaac. We read that he went and visited his father Isaac, but they didn't live in the same place. As far as leaving the older family and setting up a new family, they took it in terms of geography. That doesn't mean we have to, but it does mean psychologically there's no type of grandfather rules over all the sons and daughters-in-law type of thing here. It's not a clan situation. Each new home is unique. But added to this creation ordinance, which would have been true even if man hadn't fallen, is the idea of a new family replacing the old Adamic family. According to Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, Terah and Abraham and all of them were idolaters in Ur. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. And because the old Adamic family is in sin, it's necessary for the seed to move out of that family and start anew, have a new creation, a new family. And that's the full pregnant sense of what's being said here. Go forth from your country, which is a world under the curse, and from your relatives and your father's house, because it's in sin, it's Adamic, it's an idolatry, it's under the judgment of God. Separate from that and go to the land that I will show you. That brings us to the second part of the promise. The first part is separate from the old Adamic family. The second is land, the promise of land. We talked about the land theme last week. Land is sanctuary, home, and place of dominion. Those three things. Sanctuary, a home, and a place of dominion. And we're going to trace those themes here as we go. So land is the second thing. And then the third thing in the promise is a great nation. I will make you a great nation. What's being talked about here? Well, let's strip away the modern idea of what a nation is. Forget U.S. News and World Report. And forget everything that's in the Bible after Genesis 12. In context, you have the table of nations in Genesis 10. A list of 70 nations of the world. And when God says, I will make you a great nation, what have we read about? We read about the 70 nations in Genesis 10. And then what did those 70 nations do in Genesis 11? They fell. God created a new world. 
and the new world fell the same way Adam and Cain had fallen. They built the Tower of Babel. So the 70 nations were all defiled. What they were going to do was make a great name, and God scattered them. So God says, I will make you the great nation. And later on we find there are 70 elders in Israel. And Israel is God's replacement for the world. The nations will have to align with her in order to be saved. And when we get to the New Covenant, Jesus sends out 70 disciples to preach to Israel because Israel symbolized the whole world, and it rejects it. And so we get the church, which now is the replacement world, the church and the new kingdom. So that's what it means to be a great nation. In context, that's what Abraham would have understood by it, you see that he will be the replacement for the 70 nations that have fallen and been scattered at the Tower of Babel. God will raise up a new nation out of Abram. How? Who knows? Abram means exalted father, but his wife is barren. He has no children. But God says he will make him a great nation, the replacement nation. And then he says, I will bless you and make your name great. That's the fourth thing. D. C. was a great nation. D, a great name. Abram means exalted father. And this is later on fulfilled in a literal kind of way. We go from Avram to Avraham. Abraham. Avram is lengthened out to Avraham. And you can actually hear how the name is lengthened and becomes greater. Avram, Avraham. And it goes from meaning high father, exalted father, to Avraham, father of a multitude. So his name is made great. In a sense, it's made ridiculous. You can see people coming to visit Abram and all of his servants and all. What's your name? Abram. Exalted father. How many children do you have? None. What's your name? Abraham. How many children do you have? One. Well, I have one by a servant girl, but God told me my wife was going to have another one. was actually going to have one. Your wife is 99. So he had to bear that name by faith. And we'll study that. We'll look at that again as we go. But that's the great name. But remember a couple of other things about the name. We said last time the name in the Bible has to do with priestly character. What is the name? The name is that you're a priest of God and that you can come and talk to God and bring God's messages to the people. That's the name Christian that we bear as a nation of priests. And the name also takes us back to the Tower of Babel. Because they said, let us build a city and a tower, a home and a sanctuary, and we will make ourselves a name. And God said, no, you won't make yourself a name. I don't even record any names. We don't have any names from that period of who was involved in that. But he comes to Abram and says, I'll make your name great. If man tries to seize the privileges of rule and priesthood, God scatters him. But if man is patient, then God bestows it on him in time. Major theme in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, Abraham was patient. Abraham was patient. Abraham was patient. He waited, and God gave him everything. But those who step in and try to seize the prerogatives of rule are always scattered. So there we are, a great name, and that's what it means. The name will be the thing they tried to get at Tower of Babel. And they didn't. It means that Abraham will be a priest and will lead all the others in prayer to God. Now, there's a fifth thing here. 
I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. This sets up a theme for the entire rest of Genesis, which is ministry to the Gentiles. Ministry to the Gentiles. We'll watch how the Gentiles interface with Abram the priest. If they convert and bless Abram, then they will be blessed and prospered. But if they attack Abram, then they will be cursed, and their goods will be taken away from them. Right away this happens. Abram goes down into Egypt. He tells Pharaoh, this woman is my sister, which means if you want to have anything to do with her, talk to me. Pharaoh just takes her to his house without consulting Abram, attacks her, and God curses Pharaoh, and Abram comes out with all these spoils. There you are. You attack Abram, you get cursed, and Abraham gets your goods. Then on the other hand, we'll have the Hittites. They come and they say, we want to make a covenant and a treaty with you because we want to receive the blessing that you get. And so we'll watch that in the book of Genesis, ministry to the Gentiles. God never saved Abram just to save himself. Abram goes through the lands and builds an altar. He built an altar here. He built an altar there so he could lead the people in worship. Then finally is the promise. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the sixth thing down here. Separate from the old Adamic family, promise of land, a great nation, a great name, blessing to others, and finally all the families of the earth will be blessed, or literally of the ground. The word here in Hebrew is the word that means clay or dirt from which Adam was made. All those who are of Adamic flesh made out of the earth and earthy will be blessed by God through Abram. The ground was fallen and cursed because of Adam's sin, but it will be redeemed. The curse on the ground will be removed, and all the families of the ground will be blessed. Not most, not some, but all. This is postmillennialism. There will come a time when all the families of the earth will be blessed through the promise made to Abram, through the seed. Well, that's the promise, isn't it? Go forth from your country, from your relatives, your father's house, break it off with the old Adamic land, to the land I'll show you. I'll give you land, I'll make you a great nation, replace the nations of the world, I'll bless you and make your name great, you'll be the priest, and thus you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. I'll protect you. And finally, in you, all the families of the ground will be redeemed. Now, let's look at the spoils of this exodus. We're going to leave Haran and come to Canaan. Verses 4 and 5. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and lot with him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That connects to verse 32, as we saw. Terah was 205 and he died. Abram was 75 and he departed from Haran and went to God's land. And it says Lot with him. That means that Lot had joined himself to Abram's household. Abram didn't have to separate from Lot because Lot had joined in with him. Whoever joins to Abram gets saved, gets prospered. So it makes sense if you trust God to join up with Abram and the people that God is going to bless. And so Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions that they had accumulated. Notice how that's focused on here. The Holy Spirit didn't have to tell us that. He could just say, Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot, his nephew, and they set out for the land of Canaan and got there. We have this additional information. All the possessions that they had accumulated, spoils of the Exodus, and the souls that they had acquired. I'll come back to that in a minute. 
In your notes, I have you to list four things. The first spoil of the Exodus is Lot. Lot joins up with Abram to get the blessing. Lot later on lapses from faith, decides that staying with Abram is not the best way to get the blessing. The best way to get the blessing is to move on down to the circle of the Jordan, to Sodom and Gomorrah, and cash in on the good stuff going on down there. But at this point, he's sticking with Abram. And so that's the first spoil. The second is the possessions. Possessions are removed from Ur and Haran. And remember, of course, that all the later exoduses in the Bible, people come out with great possessions. And then the third thing is the converts. What this literally says in Hebrew is the persons or souls that they had made in Haran. It doesn't say the ones that they purchased. When you read this in our translations, you get the impression that they're talking about a bunch of slaves that they had bought in Haran. That's not what the Hebrew says. Hebrew scholars such as Umberto Casuto have pointed out that this means basically that they had converted them. And that makes sense given Abram's priestly work. Many persons had been converted in Haran and they joined to his household. We'll see later on that a man named Eleazar of Damascus was one of these and he had been adopted into the household by having his ear bored and he was actually the heir of Abraham before Isaac was born. So that will come up in chapter 15. So all these people have been converted and have been adopted into Abram's household or just joined themselves along. Now remember when Israel comes out of Egypt? There's this mixed multitude of Gentiles that come along with them. So the idea of ministry to the Gentiles and bringing them along is already here. So lots and lots of people came along with Abram. And we'll see one of the numbers there. Abram had those adopted into his house, 318 professional fighting men. Now that's not to say how many domestic servants he had, and that's just the men. That's not wives and children and all the rest. They say that a man at this time in history, 318 fighting men would have meant about 3,000 or so people all together in his household. That's what we're looking at. And a lot of these people have been converted to worshiping the Lord in Haran, and they went along with Abram. And then the fourth spoil of the Exodus is the land of Canaan itself. They set out for the land of Canaan, thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now we're so used to this land of Canaan business that we forget what it means. Oh yes, the land of Canaan, Palestine. It's just a word to us. But when this happened, it wasn't just a word. The only thing in the Bible about Canaan before is, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves he will be to his brethren. And he will be a slave to the Shemites and the Japhethites. The land of Canaan, in this context, means that the prophecy of Noah is about to be fulfilled that Canaan would lose his land and become slaves of the righteous. So the land is Canaanite at the present time, but it's going to become the land of Abram. And Abram is going to begin to exercise shadow dominion over this land. And then 430 years later, the Canaanites will be completely subjugated by Abram's descendants. So that's why the stress is there. They set out for the land of Canaan, thus they arrived at the land of Canaan. End of the passage, we've gotten there. The Exodus is over. Now I want to talk about three themes to notice here. The first one is the theme of the replacement of the firstborn. In Genesis, the firstborn son 
always is in sin and has to be replaced. It's not some type of rule that we can use in the New Covenant or even that they could use in the Old Covenant to say who's going to be saved and who isn't. But this is a symbol of the fall of Adam. Adam was God's firstborn created son, and he sinned, and so there had to be a second Adam. And throughout Genesis, the firstborn son always sins and is discredited, and a younger son takes his place. We are familiar with that with Ishmael and Isaac, and Esau and Jacob, Ephraim and Manasseh, but, or Manasseh and Ephraim, it also shows up other places. Cain and Abel. Cain was in sin, Abel replaced him, he died, Seth replaced him. Another example is Japheth and Shem. We know from comparing a bunch of Bible verses that the order of birth is Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And that's the order that they're given in the table of nations. But Shem is always listed first. We always think Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's because it's written that way. But that's not the order of birth. Shem is listed first because he was the priestly line. But the order of birth is Japheth, Shem, and Ham the youngest. And the verses that prove that are Genesis 5, verse 32, 7, verse 6, 9, verse 24, and 11, verse 10. You ought to put all those together, but when you put them together and figure out the numbers, they prove that Japheth was born first and then Shem. It's 5, 32, 7, verse 6, 9, verse 24, and 11, verse 10. Now, the same thing happens here. Notice in chapter 11, 26, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the records of the generation of Terah. Verse 27, Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. You get the impression Abram was firstborn, but he wasn't, and we can prove it in verse 29. It says, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. But actually, Nahor was the firstborn. Because we read that Abram was 75 when Terah died, and Terah died at age 205. So Abram was born when Terah was 130. But, according to 1126, Terah lived 70 years and became the father. Then it lists his sons. So Terah's first son was born when he was 70, and Abram was born when he was 130, so Abram was not the firstborn. Abram replaces the firstborn. That's the first thing we want to look at. Just take notice of Abram replaces his older brothers as the priestly line in the family. Second thing to notice, just touch on, is the barrenness of the bride, Sarai's barrenness, and the seed line. We already know, even before we get to chapter 12, we already know that Abram is going to be the carrier of the seed line. Because when we looked at the flood, we saw Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and yet when we calculated it out, Shem was not first born. But Shem is listed first because he is the seed bearer. And so when we get down to Genesis 11, and it's Abram, Nahor, and Haran, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and we know Abram's not first born, then we already can figure out for ourselves that he's listed first because he will be the seed bearer, and yet we're told that the bride is barren. So the theme of the barrenness of the bride is already set up here. And, of course, it will come up again with Rebecca. It will come up again with Rachel. It comes up again with the mother of Samson, with the mother of Samuel, with the mother of John the Baptist, and the mother of Jesus Christ. Impossible births. But God miraculously will intervene. The problem is already set up. And the third thing we want to look at 
is the Exodus theme, and we don't have much time, so we're going to have to go fast. Happily for you, you have it all written down for you, and you can actually study this at home. But the Exodus pattern in the Bible, we've just seen an example of it, a brief one. There are a bunch of different occurrences of this pattern. Abraham leaving Babylon, Abraham leaving Egypt, Genesis 12, Abraham leaving Philistia, Genesis 20, Isaac leaving Philistia, Jacob leaving Mesopotamia with his wives, from Joseph to Moses down to Egypt and out. Of course, that's the one we always think of. The ark taken into captivity by the Philistines and then being sent back full of gold. Israel delivered from Mesopotamia after the exile. And finally, there's a fulfillment of all this in Jesus. The basic elements, we will see this next week, a threat, some aspect of the curse on sin, drives the people out of a good land and into another place. A famine will take Abram down to Egypt next time. And the fulfillment, Jesus leaves heaven and is crucified outside the holy city. A second element is an attack on Eve by the serpent who wishes to use her for his own seed. Abram's wife will be attacked twice. Isaac's wife will be attacked. It's the Hebrew wives that are attacked in Egypt. And in Jesus' time, we have an attack on God's people by demonic possession, illness, Pharisees, and Rome. Third is the use of deception to trick the serpent and guard the bride. Abram does it. happens every time. The Hebrew midwives do it, deceiving the serpent and guarding the bride. Jesus drew Satan's fire on himself, tricking him. The fourth element is blessing to the redeemed and curse upon the wicked. And we know that Jesus did that. A fifth element is miraculous intervention. We saw that in the story we just looked at. Each time we'll see it. God miraculously intervenes. The incarnation was that miraculous intervention in the fulfillment. The next element is the humiliation of false gods. Ordinarily, there's a very dramatic humiliation of false gods. When Jacob comes out of Egypt and Jacob comes out of Mesopotamia, it says that Rachel stole the household gods. And then she's sitting on them and saying that she's on a period. That's pretty humiliating to the old household gods. You see, that picture there is designed to make you laugh and say so much for these gods. And this kind of ridicule of the false gods takes place every time. The plagues on Egypt, many of them were directed against principal Hebrew gods. They worship frogs. God said, you like frogs? I'll give you frogs. So forth and so on. A ridicule of false gods. Another element is departure with spoils. The New Covenant fulfillment of that is the spoiling of the Old Covenant between A.D. 30 and 70 and now the spoiling of the world. And the last basic element is the installment in the Holy Land. And Jesus, of course, is enthroned in heaven. Now, there are other elements that show up sometimes, such as actual enslavement. Jacob was reduced to slavery. At the time of Moses, the Hebrews had been reduced to slavery. And in the exile, the Jews were basically enslaved or imprisoned. Another element that shows up many times is plagues. When Abram goes into Egypt, plagues break out. Moses is in Egypt, you have plagues. When the ark is taken into Philistia, into captivity, plagues break out. And of course, there's an outbreak of demonism during Jesus' three-year ministry. The fourth other element is visions to the pagan lord. God appears to Abimelech and threatens him when Abram is in the captivity and when Abraham's wife is attacked. The same with Isaac. And God appears to Nebuchadnezzar during the exile. Visions to the pagan lord. And of course, you remember Pilate's wife's dream. You ever wondered why Pilate's wife had a dream? It fits the pattern. It's there to connect us up 
with all the other dreams that God used. And the final element that comes up a lot of times is the serpent tries to shift the blame to the righteous. It was Pharaoh who tried to rape Sarah, but when he sends Abraham out, he tries to blame Abraham. This is all your fault. You didn't tell me she was your wife. You just said she was your sister. But we'll see next time that that's even more important than being the wife in terms of making her inviolable. And remember how Herod shifts it off to Pilate, and Pilate washes his hands, and then he puts a sign on the cross that says, this is all the Jews' fault and God's fault. This is the king of the Jews, shifting the blame. So, just to conclude, let's notice that the passage we looked at today has this Exodus pattern outline. It doesn't have all the details. Each new Exodus story is bigger than the one before, and the pattern expands as God gives more and more details to us so that we can understand the work of our Lord better. But the threat to the seed comes from living in the Tower of Babel culture. The bride is barren and seedless in Babylon. She's under attack in that sense. There's a miraculous intervention, a humiliation of false gods in that Abram converts, departure with lots of spoils, and an installment in the new land of Canaan. The next time we'll watch this Exodus pattern in a much bigger form, when Abraham leaves the land and goes down into Egypt and then departs with even more spoils. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.